0: So I want to start off by uh, sharing with you about how uh, there, a few years ago I was eating out at a restaurant with a bunch of church friends. And can you pull up that first slide? And uh, uh, as we were eating, uh, the uh, Dustin and I, Dustin Wong and I, uh, we went. We were standing at the bar because the, the Warriors game was on. And uh, and Dustin uh, turns to me and says, "Like, Are you okay? You're kind of uh, uh, squinting a lot at the TV." And uh, and for me, the TV looked like this. I thought I was standing at a distance. That's why it's not just for copyright issues, but. <laughs> the picture's blurred out, but this is what it looked like to me. And, uh, and I said, what are you talking about? Doesn't it look blurry to you at this distance? He's like, no. <laughs> I was like, hmm, no, I guess I think I'm just tired. My eyes are just tired. And see, let me give you some uh, context, because all these years, through the years, uh, I was told when I was in elementary school that I had 20-20 vision. And so all this time I've been telling my wife about the superiority of my eyesight than her that if I were not a Christian, I would say that in ancient times, uh, Melissa that you would be more likely to fall prey to dangers and predators and be naturally selected out of the species compared to me because of my superior eyesight. And so you can imagine my surprise when after talking with Dustin, it prompted me to eventually go see an eye doctor, and uh, the, the eye doctor said to me, you need glasses, sir. And it turned out that my prescription is by far worse than Melissa's. And you see, all my life, I'd been reading and watching TV and driving through slightly blurry eyes. And so it's amazing to me when I finally got glasses, what it's like when you're able to look at the world with the right lens, that your decisions and your direction and your destination suddenly become very clear. Now some of you are like, oh my God, this guy's been driving on the roads with us. And I want to propose to you that many of us today are still in that same condition, that we continue to walk through life, to drive through life with blurry vision. That even though, whether you are Christian or not, I think this generation of people, we want to be ethical, we want to be kind, we want to be just in our attitudes and in our actions, and yet our vision is often blurred by the influence of societal values, of worldly standards, of Political parties. And I want to say that for many of us, that political parties on both sides of the aisle often the values are abiblical, that means without biblical value, and sometimes even unbiblical or anti biblical. And you've heard me say so many times that if your values align too closely with any particular political party, you are probably worshiping the wrong God. And so, what we need is for Jesus to bring clarity to bring our lives into focus through perhaps a better lens. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to turn in it to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We are starting this series called Clear. If you don't have a Bible, there's one probably in the seat in front of you. They're there under the seats, every other seat. And if you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home with you. We have plenty of those. Uh, they're uh, new. We want you to have those. Those are for you to take. And so we want you to have a Bible. But we're in this series called Clear where we're learning in a confusing way conflicted world to see life through the countercultural lens of the gospel and the word gospel simply means good news the good news about Jesus and so we're in this thing about Corinthians because the apostle Paul he comes to this city to preach the gospel way back in acts chapter 18 not in this book and While he's there, him and his buddies, they start a church of both Jewish people and for non-Jewish people. He stays with them and equips them and trains them how to follow Jesus, how to love and worship Jesus for about a year and a half before he has to leave. He's called to continue on in his uh, missionary journey to other cities where he continues to plant churches. And if you don't know anything about the city of Corinth, ancient Corinth is very similar in personality to the Bay Area today in the sense that it was a bustling, seaside, cosmopolitan city in Greece under Roman rule. And so they had a lot of Western values uh, where many different cultures and religions intermingled. It was such a hub that people would come from all over Asia Minor, from uh, parts of Rome, from other parts in the Middle East, and then they would be, they're basically like expats living there. And so their cultures and their religions intermingled. And so a lot of times what it was like was, it's like a buffet where you pick and choose. What do you want to consume? from I like this part of your culture, I like this food that you eat, I like this God that you worship. Corinth was known for its rugged individualism. That was one of the highest values, that personal success, personal honor, personal pleasure were the highest priorities, and that people would worship whatever gods would fit their needs to attain those things. And the problem was, the same values began infiltrating the church began to blur the eyes of followers of Jesus. And so Paul writes to these Corinthian Christians to answer some questions that they have, some concerns about them, about how to see their lives and their world clearly through the lens of Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's stop right there for a minute. A lot of times we, Paul writes a lot of his letters this way at the beginning, and we often skim through it, it's just his greeting. But what's happening here is that throughout the book that we're going to read, you'll see that the Corinthian church, they face a lot of confusion and compromise with the culture about how to handle decisions or disagreements, how to handle their future and their finances and their friendships, how to handle marriage and singleness and sex and divorce. Uh, They are wrestling with compromising and confusing uh, things about cultural customs, about what's sinful, what's worshipful, what's permissible. They're even being confused by the culture about what's so important about the death and resurrection of Jesus, and how does that apply to our lives and our world clearly for our life today. And so Paul's writing to clear these things up. And so in verse 1, what he starts off doing is, I haven't seen you in a few years now, and so I'm going to reiterate my identity to you, that I've been called by God, like the 12 disciples who were with Jesus, as an apostle. And that's important because uh, you'll see that later on uh, in the series, in chapter 14. But an apostle is simply somebody whom Jesus has given the authority to both establish churches, govern the churches, and record the Word of God. And so it's a very special position uh, that God has appointed for some certain spiritual leaders. And then he says in verse 2, For those of you whose eyes are blurry and blinded by the world. I'm going to give you this lens for clarity. And this is the point of the whole book in uh, verse 2, that I'm writing to the church of God in Corinth, to those who are sanctified. That's a very churchy, biblical word. What does that mean? It means to be made holy, That's, that God is making you holy. That's all that sanctified means, that to those who are being made holy in Christ Jesus. And here's the point. He's making sure you are clear about who you are. That you're not just like all the people living in the city of Corinth. You're not just these driven, self indulgent people who happen to go to church on Sunday as one of the many things that are part of your identity, but that your identity is in Christ. This is primarily who you are that you love Him, you worship Him, you live for Him. And how does belonging, belonging to Jesus affect the way that you live? He goes on to say that you were called to be saints. There's that word again. It means actually translated in English as holy people, and it comes from that same word as sanctification. That means that in Christ, we're being made holy. You're thinking like, me? Really? All that means is that holiness means being distinct from the world, being set apart for God, and so that we don't just follow the values and the voices and the practices of the society around us. We follow Jesus. We follow His Word. And then, he goes on, not only are you called to be holy, you're called to be saints together. This is the key words in this whole passage. Those two words, if you don't remember anything else this morning, saints together with everyone, everywhere who calls on the name of Jesus as Lord. So there's this calling for us to be holy people, and there's this also this calling to unity, to be, uh, to be saints together with all those who follow Jesus. And I want you to understand what that means, because a lot of times people come, and maybe if you were like me, uh, when I first came to church as a college student, it's kind of like, Oh, man, Uh, religious people doesn't mean like, you know, you all have to dress the same and talk the same and act the same. No, that's not what it means. It's not conformity. It means harmony. It means that uh, we share, that people come, and we appreciate all the diverse backgrounds we have, whether your ethnic background, your socioeconomic background, your personality, what kind of music you listen to. doesn't matter to me unless you like Justin Bieber. No, thank you. But all those things, you're still welcome here. I shouldn't say that. That we can share all these values and priorities and love For Jesus, and that's the focus that we love our, we share in our love for Jesus, we share in our love for the family of Christ, and the way that Jesus describes that in John chapter 13, verse 35 is that by this all people will know that you're my disciples, you're my followers, by your love for one another. Oh, so in this world of confusion and conflict, we're called to be set apart for Jesus, we're called to be a light in the darkness. And the big idea of this morning and this whole book is that you and I, as the church, we're called to live through the lens of our identity in Christ, and that the way that that is most expressed to the world is in our holiness, being set apart, not being perfect, being set apart, being made right with God, being made holy, and in our unity together. That there's something different about a people who love each other who can work through conflicts, who can, like you've heard me say that one of the great miracles is that is being part of a church where uh, people who are like porcupines all gather together, and we should be poking each other and sometimes hurting each other, and yet out of the love of Christ, we're able to still care about each other and love each other. You see, in this world that we live in, in our society, it's not very different than the people in Corinth. There's a lot of indecision and uncertainty about what should I do, how should I live, What's right? What's wrong? What's wise? What's true? I know because I'm the pastor and so many of you come to me and things that uh, normally would be very clear to a lot of Christians sometimes we get our eyes blurry about. So that, and the reason why there's so much indecision and uncertainty is because sometimes we're unclear on what our identity is. That we don't see ourselves and our lives through the right lens. And Paul is saying in the beginning of this passage is if you know who you are in Christ it will shape how you live in the world because so much of what we do flows from who we are and how we see ourselves and so let's start with this this morning this is taking up the bulk of the time i want us to take an inventory i want you to listen carefully and think about yourself don't think about your spouse don't think about the person sitting next to you but for yourself take an inventory about which of these apply to you what applies to your identity Pastor Tim Keller, in his book uh, *Reason for God*, I summarize some of his points. But he talks about if your identity revolves around relationships, like marriage, and that's who the primary—that's per- who you see yourself primarily—is all about your relationship. That's who you are and what you are. You will become emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling, because your whole life, your identity is re- worshiping this relationship in place of God. If your identity revolves around your children, you'll either worship them and they'll grow entitled and spoiled, or you'll push them because you're trying to live your life through them until they they break or resent you. But either way, whether you spoil them or control them, you will destroy them. If your identity revolves around your career, you'll be driven to workaholism. And this applies to you if you're a student, too if your life is all about getting good grades, getting good test scores, getting into the right college. You become driven, you'll sacrifice your family and friends for your success, or you'll fall into a deep depression when you fail. If your identity revolves around riches, having stuff of this life, you'll be consumed by worry and jealousy about money and stuff. And you'll find that you're willing to do bend the rules and willing to do unethical things to maintain the lifestyle you have until you get caught and things break. If your life revolves around pleasure and comfort, you'll develop an addiction to something. That's one of my weak areas. You'll be enslaved by an escape strategy to avoid the painful and hard things of life. If your life and identity revolve around approval from people, you'll be constantly and overly hurt by people's feedback and criticism. You'll fear confrontation. And the ironic thing is, desiring approval so much, you'll ironically lose friends because you can't handle the little jabs that you get from people around you. If your identity revolves around a noble cause or a religion or morality, the our behavior, of being a good person, two things can happen. Either you'll live up to your moral standards and you'll become proud and self-righteous and cruel towards other people, judgmental. Or you'll find you're unable to live up to those standards and you'll be devastated by the guilt that you feel that I'm not good enough either. Out of that list of things, I want you to be thinking about which one applies to me. And I suspect that if you're like me, there's probably multiple ones that you could check the box that, yep, this is me, this is where my identity revolves around. (coughs) Excuse me. But if you see yourself as a child of God, saved by faith, in Jesus, his death, his resurrection, then your identity is that I'm already loved, I'm already forgiven, I'm already accepted, I already have peace and joy and hope and the assurance of a future in Christ. If my identity is in Christ, then I will be empowered and transformed as the church to be a community that grows in holiness and harmony. It's not something that I do to earn God's favor, it's something I do in response to it because of what he's doing in me, and it will be evidence to the world that there's a true life, there is a better life in Christ. And so I want to start off this morning. Are you clear about your identity in Christ? Now, we hear those things like, okay, if you're following Jesus, my identity is in Jesus, then I'm supposed to live like, you know, in holiness and in harmony. Uh, That just sounds like more oppressive religion, just like any other religion. Like that that just means I need to try harder and do better. Is that all this is? Verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was uh, confirmed amongst you, so that you're not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So what's happening here is in verse 12, Paul is thanking God first and foremost that he has given grace to the Corinthians. You hear this word a lot in church. Grace simply means favor from God, something that you didn't have to earn, something that you didn't have to work for, that something that you didn't have to good it, be good enough to get. Things like The forgiveness of your sin through Jesus' death. Receiving life everlasting through Jesus' resurrection. Having a reconciled relationship with God through Jesus' connection with you. He doesn't just leave you an orphan. He stays connected with you. And then in verses 5 through 7, he tells the Corinthian church, you know, God's unearned grace to them and to even us today also includes giving spiritual gifts. And this seems like a tangent, but you'll see how it connects in a second. Spiritual gifts What is that? It just means like these God-given abilities that God gives in the church, like uh, having spiritual wisdom or being generous or having leadership or service or hospitality. But these are uh, God-given abilities that he gives to build each other up in the church. And so for the Corinthians, we see in this passage, they talk about speech and knowledge, that their spiritual gifts primarily were about preaching and understanding God's word. And the goal that God gives spiritual gifts is to help each other grow in faith and maturity together. But there's a problem in this church. In chapters 12 through 14, the Corinthians, they have begun to think, you know what, my gifting makes me more holy than the next guy. As if some gifts are more spiritually significant. As if I contribute more to the body of Christ than these other people over here. But you Think about how ridiculous that is. Because if something is a gift from God... That means that it's not something from my own capability, my own morality, my own maturity that makes me holy. It's by grace, unearned grace, that I receive this thing from God so that none can boast. So instead, in verse 8, he says that it's Jesus who's at work to sustain you in your faith, in your growth, so that when he returns on the day of judgment, it says that you will be guiltless. Now, this is a really important word because it means about being Clean, it means that because we're washed clean by the shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross, that you will not be condemned for, the, for your sinfulness at the end of your life. Instead, you'll have grown in holiness over the course of your life. Now, you should be thinking, if you're honest with yourselves, kind of like me, but Pastor Josh, I'm just like I'm not that holy of a person. Like, how, do, how am I supposed to get there? Verse 9, this is how it works. It says, because God has called us into fellowship, that's a very churchy word too, it just means intimacy, into our identity with Jesus. That as we spend time connecting with Jesus in prayer, in listening to his word, in giving him our attention and our devotion, in giving him our needs and our hearts and our lives, that we will experience more of Jesus, more of his grace, more of his strength, more of his wisdom, his power, and his transformation in our lives by connecting more closely, more regularly with Jesus. And so the point here is that when you and I belong to Jesus, when our identity is in Jesus, in connecting with Jesus on a daily basis, on a regular basis, that we will grow in holiness by God's grace, not by our gifts. That it's not the Corinthians' spiritual service to God, it's not their maturity, their ability, their efforts that makes them guiltless, that makes them righteous, that makes them holy before God, That it is simply the unearned grace of God. You need to hear that. That growing more like Jesus, we're growing more like Jesus, not because we work for Jesus, but by connecting with Jesus. Jesus tells it to us like this in John chapter 15, verse 5 in the Gospel of John, I, Jesus, and the vine, you are the branches. And whoever abides in me, in other words, connects in me, and I in him will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Some ministry, you can do few good things and grow more holy? No, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so I want you to see this, that it's not the fruitfulness of our service to God or other people that makes us holy or closer to Jesus. It's staying close to Jesus that grows our holiness and our fruitfulness in him. There was a young woman uh, named Stacy. Uh, She got pregnant, age 17. She ended up giving up the baby for adoption, and only her family and her close friends knew about it. Years later, she met this terrific guy, a very compassionate guy, uh, married him, his name was Ron. But fearing his reaction and his judgment, because he was this godly Christian guy, she never told him about her past. And over the years, she concealed her guilt and her grief about it, till it overwhelmed her, and then it all came spilling out now, what surprised her was that her husband—he didn't get upset with her. Like I said, man who loved Jesus knew how to love people. Healthy, he healthy in his emotions. Instead, he cared about the pain that she had had to carry all this time. But Stacy was unable to cope. She felt she didn't deserve that kind of forgiveness or kindness. Like she had failed according to society's standards. She felt unworthy of being loved and so she refused to forgive herself for keeping this a secret left her husband in the book of uh, the search for significance and it's a book i highly recommend i just put it out in the lobby for a few copies it talks about it this way this woman when you are unclear about your identity in christ like stacy when you're separated from jesus and his world and his word then people have only their performance or other people's opinions to define our identity and our worth. that we feel like we have to earn people's acceptance. That, and what we need to hear from the search for significance is that your true value isn't based on your behavior, your performance, or the approval of others, but on what God and his word says is true about us. So if you're struggling with holiness or sinfulness or discerning between the two, you and I, we can waste a lot of time and energy trying to manage our behavior when what we really need is to connect with our Savior. And some of us, you're still trying to earn acceptance from God, from people, by trying harder, by doing better to be holy. You're trying to balance the scales and pay God back through your efforts, through your spiritual gifts, through your service. What would it look like to simply turn to Jesus, open your hands, and receive grace? that He gives the forgiveness of sin, that He has unfailing love for you in God, that He loves you, that He welcomes you, that He empowers you, that He can change you, not because you paid for it or earned it, but because He loves you. That's grace. Now, for the Corinthians… They're struggling with what it means to have their identity in Christ, what it means to follow Jesus. And you can tell because uh, not only are they struggling with what does it mean to be holy, they're living contrary to their identity in Christ and what it means to live in unity. And let's wrap up with the end of this passage, a longer section, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions amongst you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling quarreling amongst you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. You don't know who Cephas is. That's another name for Simon Peter, the apostle. Or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus. Oh yeah, and Gaius, so that no no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Wait, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Anyways, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see, uh, in verses 10 through 11, there's a sister in the church named Chloe, she kind of snitched on our on church and says to Paul uh, that there's infighting going on within the church in Corinth. And I love this part of this letter because you see what happens here? Like when something, somebody does something bad, whether you're a parent or you're know, a kid in a home or whether you are a Christian, you expect someone to yell at you, you know? Unfortunately, a lot of Christians feel that way about being a part of the church. And Paul doesn't yell at these guys. He says, I appeal to you. I don't command you. I don't condemn you. I appeal to you in the name of Jesus as the family of Christ. Would you please work towards being in agreement instead of division? And what he says there is, it's not mindless conformity. It's mindful harmony that we be unified together in the same thinking and values of the gospel. You see, he had heard in verse 12 that you've been, you guys are polarized around who's your favorite teacher of the Bible. I'm team Paul or I'm team Apollos. I'm team Simon Peter. And for the holy rollers, well, I'm team Jesus. <laughs> okay, you win. And so what's happening here is, you know, as they're arguing about these things, they're not divided over theology. And I want you to hear this. This is really important because sometimes people feel like, well, maybe it's because they have different, you know, denominational, you know, emphases about what they believe or whatever about the Bible. No, uh, actually, it, Peter, Paul, and Apollos, they're on the, they all have the same theology. They're, they're on team Jesus. They're all on the same team. You'll, you'll see that later in chapter 3, verse 5. And so what's important here is being united doesn't mean that we don't Talk about theology. There are certain non-negotiables about the gospel that define our faith that we must agree on. That is the division between uh, whether or not somebody's a Christian or not. So if you come in and you're telling me, "Well, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't really believe that Jesus is God or that He died for my sins and rose from the dead and is my Savior," and I'd say, "I don't, I don't think you're a Christian, my friend." So there are some things that are non-negotiable that we have to have a dividing line about. But that's not what's happening here. They are not dividing over theology, but over celebrity. What I mean is, who is the person that you follow? And I want to say that the problem here is not with the pastors, but with the people. Because it's not like, you know, uh, Paul or or Apollos were going around like, my preaching is by far superior, therefore you should, you know, elevate me as the best preacher. Uh, It's the people's problem because they're arguing, well, this guy is the better preacher. He's more wise, he's more interesting, he's more engaging, unlike Paul. You're going to see that Paul is really down on himself in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He's like, okay, there's some people who really preach, like, give great illustrations, tell great stories, uh, have clever words. That's not me. And by And the people, as they kind of pick and choose who their favorite teacher is, they believe that by associating with a certain leader or a clever preacher, somehow that makes me more spiritual, more holy than other people. And in verse 13, Paul points out, this is nonsensical to be divided over things like that. If the church is the body of Christ, how can Christ be divided against himself? Was I, Paul, crucified on the cross on your behalf? Was I? Were you baptized in my name so that you're pledging your life and your allegiance to me? No, that's ridiculous. So in verses 14 through 16, he goes on this rant, right? He kind of has a sidebar. I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you. Oh, wait, now I remember. There was a few individuals and families. But anyways, I want you to know I didn't, I'm glad I didn't baptize most of you so that you won't think that you pledged allegiance to me. And he gets to the heart of the matter at the end of this passage, verse 17. It's not about who baptized you. It's not about who has the slickest or the cleverest words, but the issue is, is the gospel preached? The good news about Jesus going to a cross to die for our sin and to rise as our Savior, he says that in the gospel there is power. There's power to heal our hurts, to fix our fears, to defeat our doubts, to bear our burdens, to forgive our sins, to Give us life because he rose from the dead and he's coming again and you can be with him forever. That is the power of the gospel. That's amazing and that's why it's good news. And that that power that comes from Jesus can take people like you and I who maybe have nothing else in common and give us unity, give us family in Christ. And so the point here is that in the work and the power of Jesus, you and I can be grown. We grow, he grows us in unity to overcome the divisions and the broken relationships that we experience in the church. And so I want you to think about it this way. Let me jump to just an application question. This morning, is there a rift that needs to be reconciled with a brother or sister in Christ? so that there will be no division amongst you in the body of Christ. Somebody that you've been avoiding, somebody that you've been judging, somebody that you've hurt, somebody that you have a clear... You both know that there's a leaf between you two. Now, what the Bible and I am not saying is that you should just ignore or invite abusive people or toxic people or injustice back into your life. But what this passage is saying to us... <coughs> is that many of our situations, It's not uh, the problem is not the other person's sin. It's ours. That I've been arrogant and angry. That I have been judgmental and cruel. That I have shown preferential treatment or prejudicial treatment. That I need to repent and reconcile with that person because Christ is not divided against himself. That is a terrible testimony and conformity to the world. Instead, when your identity is in Christ, by the work and power of Jesus, you and I can experience unity to overcome the divisions and the broken relationships, and that's good news. You know that you can experience the kind of relationships, the kind of healthiness, the kind of godliness that can be a testimony to the world of how good Jesus is. Some of you who are baseball fans, you might remember uh, the seventh inning of the 2016 uh, World Series, Game 7, last game, 2016 World Series. Chicago Cubs were leading 6-3, to three, and they brought in their dominant relief pitcher to get those final outs, seal the victory, and break uh, for fans of, of Chicago uh, the seemingly long-time curse that their team has experienced. Like, long, long, time. it's a long story. It's a tangent, but I, I'll get into it. So they were so close, but instead what happened, their opponents, the Cleveland Indians, First hit a double, and then this guy who's blurred out on the big screen, he hit a two-run homer to tie the game. You could feel the momentum shift completely to to Cleveland, and all those poor Cubby fans, had. you could feel this collective sigh of despair that they all felt that familiarity of, okay, here's where the wheels fall off, and the curse is still alive. And it's as if God was making things worse. Providentially, it just began to rain. It's like, here's your bad day, here's how, you, here's how you should feel. And in fact, it caused a rain delay. And so, it was amazing. All the players on the Cubs, they were just kind of sitting and waiting out the rain delay in dread, in silence. But sensing their deflated spirits in the dugout, the Cubs right fielder, Jason Hayward, he called the team together and he gave this fiery speech. Remember who you are, your identity as the best regular season team in baseball that we've already won two other rounds of playoffs, that we are the team that came back from a 3-1 deficit, that hurts Warriors fans, from a 3-1 deficit to force a final game seven. This is our game to win, not just our game to lose. And so inspired, the Cubs rallied with two go-ahead runs at the top of the 10th, and instead of accepting the inevitability of defeat, they charged ahead, fueled by the truth of who they are, And the Chicago Cubs won their first World Series in 108 years. (laughs) You can see why they thought they were cursed. I want to challenge you. Remember who you are. That as we navigate this confusing and conflicting world that we live in and standards of society, that there's going to be times you're going to feel discouraged, distracted, defeated. And the question is, are you clear on your identity? that you're called to see through the lens of our identity in Christ and that through Christ we can live out a life that is filled with holiness and unity together. And it's not by trying hard enough or serving God enough, it's not by following the right people or avoiding the wrong people, but by receiving grace from Jesus we discover that he is wonderful, he is amazing, he is forgiving, he is loving, he is encouraging, he is empowering to a life that the world cannot give and that the world needs to see. And so may the gospel illuminate your identity in Christ so that you can see clearly your freedom from sin, wisdom to live, family in Christ to love. May you be holy and set apart for the glory of God and to be a light unto others. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your word this morning, we humbly ask that even in this moment as we continue to worship you in song, that you would be pouring into us again and again our identity in Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you do some spiritual surgery? Help us to see where do we currently place our identity? Probably there's a lot of things where we put our identity. And those are all important things. Those are all pieces of who we are. But they're not primary of who we are. May we know that who we truly are in Jesus is people who are forgiven and accepted, people who are empowered, who can live in victory, people who can grow increasingly holy, people who can grow increasingly in unity. Help us, God. Help us to know who we are and to receive grace. Would you release us from some of the sins that we have as we wrestle with our holiness? Help us to bring it before you, even now. And would you release us from the damage of broken relationships, that there might not be division, that we might live in unity. Speak to us, O Lord, about who we are in Jesus.